Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. We'll be right back to today's show. But before we do, I want to let you know that you can get a free copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, when you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcast, either on desktop or on your phone. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, look up Think Unbroken, click follow in the top right, and then go and leave a review at the bottom. And when you leave that review, screenshot it and send it over to book.thinkunbroken.com 
where you can upload your contact and mailing information, and we will send you a free copy of this award-winning best-selling book, absolutely free, including shipping. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to upload your screenshot review from Apple Podcasts for the Think Unbroken podcast. And until next time, my friend, be unbroken. I'll see you. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a wait list for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world today. Very excited to be back with you with another episode with my guest, Jennifer Kramer, who is an artist, a licensed art therapist, and an online coach who helps women overcome the effects of narcissistic abuse. Jennifer, my friend, how are you today? What is happening in your world? I am amazing. I woke up this morning and went on a walk and listened to the Think Unbroken podcast while I was walking, and now I'm being interviewed on the Think Unbroken podcast. So that's a pretty amazing day. That's amazing. Well, it is my honor to have you here. I'm very excited. For those who do not know you, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, so um, I think it's important to give kind of a, a foundation of, of where my my life started with my family um, in in the context of the generational trauma. I I grew up with a single mom and and my twin sister, so the three of us primarily, and also my grandmother was a big part of our life. My mother had made a really difficult decision when her her twin daughters were just babies to to leave my father who. Her, her report was emotionally and verbally abusive and a little bit physically as well. And um, I just think that's important to, to note because it's like my, my foundation in life was both based on this, um, this situation of abuse and divorce and betrayal, but also on this very strong woman who, who took this brave step to, to walk out of a marriage literally one weekend when some things came to a head to pack up her two babies and put them in the back of an acquaintance's car and travel two states away to make a choice that she thought was best for herself and her, and her children. Um, so that said, I grew up primarily with my mom and my grandmother and my sister. That was my nuclear family. And um, as my, my sister and I have gotten older, we've recognized that that our mother really um, leaned on us emotionally as a single parent who had her own unresolved trauma. She really um, just just kind of wore her emotions on her sleeve. She didn't have a lot of close friends to share her struggles as a single parent with. And so we, we heard about the financial struggles, her frustrations with work, her frustrations with us. And, and I've recognized that as an adult, I've developed some codependent tendencies as, as a part of that, that I have this tendency to 
feel like I have to take care of others emotionally the way I always felt like I had to take care of my mom. Um, as a child, I was painfully shy. I was very shy and barely spoke out at school and in public. At home, I, I was very short-tempered, always yelling and slamming doors. There were a couple of years in elementary school where I acted out at school as well. I would hit boys who made fun of me for being overweight. But then quickly after that, I, I receded back into myself and really withdrew. In middle school and high school, it was not uncommon for me to go through the entire school day without saying a word to anyone. Um, but in, so in high school, I had a really pivotal experience. So, well, first I'll say around age 14, 15, um, I was definitely depressed and lonely. I didn't have friends. It's so important at that age to have friends. My twin sister had friends and I did not. And, um, and I, I felt very depressed, often thought about suicide, never really developed a plan, but that was always in my mind because I just wanted a way out. I was so lonely. And then I had this experience between my freshman and sophomore years of high school where I went on a mission trip with my church youth group. We traveled from Kentucky to Montana on a hot bus with broken air conditioning for three days, three days of driving. And we were able to um, go and serve and help a small church in Montana. No idea now why we had to drive to Montana to do that, but that's what we did. And I know you speak, Michael, so much about the importance of service in our healing journey of serving others. And that was my first experience of being able to serve others simply because I came from a large church who knew how to do some things. We put on a little vacation Bible school for the kids at this little church in Montana. And I thought, wow, I have something to offer to someone else. So for the first time at age 15, I felt like I had some value that I could give to someone else. And that experience combined with um, a mentor relationship that I had, that I had with, with a young man who went on that trip, um, who didn't allow me to push him away the way other adults allowed me to push him away. Um, that experience of that friendship, that mentoring relationship with that experience of service really, really just took away all of those suicidal thoughts. Now, that doesn't mean I didn't struggle more throughout high school, um, but, but it was a real turning point for me. And I really decided around that time that I wanted to someday work with, with people. At that time, I was thinking kids or teenagers only because that was, you know, my life experience up to that point. And I wanted to help others the way that mentor had helped me, but I wasn't sure what that would look like. And again, I still barely spoke at school. You know, I, I didn't know how I would do that, but that was a long-term goal. Um, when it came time for college, I decided to, um, I, had, I had studied art all through high school in a very intensive magnet high school program. I was a little burned out on art by the time I got to college, but I decided I would become an art teacher because that's what my mother had done. That's what I'd grown up with. It took one art education class for me to realize that was not for me. I did not get excited about laminating, um, you know, visual aids of impressionist paintings. I was not, not a teacher personality for sure. And then I had a bit of an identity crisis and I thought, well, I want to pursue art, but if I don't have a job lined up, like being an art teacher, then what's the point? Like, should I really do that? And so I spent a whole semester just thinking about it, um, praying about it. And I decided through, through a chain of events that, that it was um, important for me to continue to pursue art because that's what I was interested in. That's what I felt a calling to. And that's, that's where I was talented. And so, so I made the decision to just get a Bachelor of Fine Arts degree, which for those who don't know, that literally just trains you to be a professional artist. So you put on a senior art show, you write your artist statement, you publicize it, 
And I knew that I didn't want to do that for a living, but I want, I valued that education of learning how to be a better artist. And I trusted that there would be a career for me. And I kept saying, I want to use art to help people, but I'm not sure, you know, what that looks like. There were a few people in my life who, who suggested art therapy around that time. And I remember really, really thinking that I was not smart enough to do that. I thought the psychology aspect of that was too much for me. I thought I'm an artist. I want to help people and art therapy might seem logical, but I just was not confident in my, in my intelligence to, to do that. It didn't seem feasible to me. So fast forward after college, I didn't know what to do with myself for a while. I thought I was going to go, you know, move to Arizona and be a missionary. That's a whole other story. Like I was just all over the place trying to figure out what to do. And, um, and with that thought of just wanting to help people and to get experience doing that, I, I got a job that um, turned out to be much, much more intense than I thought, but it was a very valuable experience. I got a job at a residential facility um, for boys who had been abused and neglected, um, spent most of their life in the foster care system. And so these were kids um, who had most likely been um, hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital after some sort of um, violent outburst or series of violent outbursts or other dangerous behaviors um, in the foster home they were in. And then as sort of a step down from the hospital level of care, they were sent to this residential facility. And so I was, gosh, like, like 23, 24. I had very minimal experience working with children, but I was like, oh, I want to help people. And so I got in this job where I was working in a living unit with boys who were ages 8 to 11, um, all with very severe behaviors. I was told that if I didn't get, get cussed out and called a bitch at least once every shift that I was working, that I wasn't doing my job. Um, because it was our job to to set boundaries and discipline yeah. and also to love on these kids. And in retrospect, that was the best experience I could have had um, to prepare me to be a therapist because I wasn't just reading in the DSM manual about, you know, the the diagnostic criteria for oppositional defiant disorder or PTSD. I was seeing it every day at work. I was seeing it in these kids. And um, to this day, I often think back on those experiences to inform my, my clinical practice as an art therapist now. And so it was in that job that I naturally started doing art activities with those boys because that was something I could do. And then lo and behold, I thought, well, maybe art therapy could make sense for me because I started to have that mental health experience in that job. And so then I gradually started this process of going back to school, taking all the undergraduate psychology classes that I had not taken before because I thought they were too much for me. And um, I already had all the art prerequisites um, for sure. And I started this graduate school program. Um, around that same time, so sort of to backtrack a little bit, um, that, was, that was in my 20s. Um, I also... Um, experienced a few dating relationships where I started to notice a pattern that, that in a scary way, I was thinking, oh, maybe I'm repeating this pattern that my mom was in. And actually my grandmother was potentially in both my grandmother and my mother were divorced. And so I, I started noticing myself really being drawn to, to controlling men, to men with histories of addiction and trauma, um, to men who had active addictions. And um, I was really thoughtful during that time of wanting to break this pattern of not, not continuing um, in that. And I thought I had a really, really good hold on that. And so around the time I was um, finishing up art therapy school, starting my career, I was in an abusive relationship um, that was kind of the, 
the, the the icing on the cake to all abusive relationships I've been in before. In fact, I maybe wouldn't even characterize those previous relationships as abusive, but definitely dysfunctional, definitely some manipulation there and some control. Um, but this, this relationship was, um, I, I believe, narcissistic abuse. I believe his behaviors are um, characterized as narcissistic. And um, in the beginning, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not repeating this pattern because on the surface, he really presented very differently from the other people. Like his personality was very different. Um, he seemed to really have a heart for serving others, which of course I did too. We actually got to know each other by serving alongside one another in our community. And I did not rush into it. I thought I was doing everything the right way. Um, it wasn't, often you'll hear people talk about a relationship with a narcissist as being this whirlwind experience where they just got swept up and, um, and you know, got into the relationship quickly. Things got serious quickly. That was not the case. We were friends for a long time. I thought I was doing everything the right way and breaking my pattern. Lo and behold, I find out that was not the case. Um, it was a very abusive relationship, very, very crazy making. And um, the decision to leave that relationship, I would, I would call sort of my, my rock bottom, the fact that that relationship failed. And during this period of time in my life, there were also multiple other things that really rocked my sense of identity. So um, my mother died, actually my grandmother and my mother died 11 months apart. Um, and so you know, that was half my family, right? I do have other family that I keep in touch with that are part of my life. But as far as who I grew up with, it was my grandmother, my mom, and my sister, and half of that family was gone. And so that really shook my sense of self. Um, then I also um, changed jobs multiple times, moved multiple times. I became a mother myself and found myself as a single mother. And then this, this abusive relationship as well and so, so for all of that, I, I didn't know who I was anymore. I felt um, definitely at a rock bottom. And uh, I have some other thoughts around rock bottom that I'd like to mention in a minute, maybe. But um, actually, I'll go ahead and mention it now. You know, I think, I think that, that our rock bottom experiences are relative, right? Like it looks different in everybody's situation. And Michael, I've often heard you ask your guests essentially, do you think that reaching a rock bottom moment is necessary? Like, can we somehow avoid that? And I think in retrospect, looking at my experience, so I needed that relationship to, to hit rock bottom and to, to really catapult my feeling and actually break the pattern. Um, that is what, what catapulted me into actually pursuing therapy for real for the first time and so many other, um, you know, like a support group, all kinds of things that were so helpful to me. But I think if we think about that rock bottom as the thing that is the catalyst for that big change in our life, I think we can actually sort of control that, if that makes sense. Like, what if everybody listening today thinks about if you're in this pattern that you've noticed, like I was in my 20s in those dating relationships. And you think, well, I'm not, I'm not like in a horrible place yet. I'm not like those people that actually need to go to therapy or actually need to do all these other extreme things to heal themselves. What if we stopped and, and made a choice that that last experience, whether it was that last time we abused drugs and alcohol, that last unhealthy relationship, that last time we, we, we binged on, on a food that, that made us feel sick. Like, what if that was um, the last time and you decide, Hey, I think that was my rock bottom. And now 
I'm going to move forward um, and change, you know? And so um, I think in retrospect, yeah, I sort of maybe needed that in order to catapult me into this, um, this phase of more healing, this phase of therapy and really seeking help, but I could have done that earlier. So that's kind of what I want listeners to consider that you can maybe choose that your rock bottom is right now and you don't have to wait for it to sort of happen to you. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Just want to take a moment and invite you to be my guest at Think Unbroken Conference this November. That's right. Think Unbroken is hosting our Unbroken Con for free. It's five days of trauma transformation information with myself, special guests, and even some of the leading experts in trauma education from around the world. For five days, we're going to jump into what it means to actually take the steps to be unbroken. All you have to do is register for free at unbrokencon.com. That's U-N-B-R-O-K-E-N-C-O-N.com. That's right. Five days of trauma transformation information with me, special guests, and some of the world's leading trauma-trained experts for free for five days this November. More details to come, but in the meantime, go to unbrokencon.com to register, and I'll see you there. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's, there's so many thoughts here that I have about your journey and your story. And and the reason I've just kind of been listening and absorbing it is because it's relatable. Right. And I think so often people immediately kind of look at the experience of other people's lives and go, oh, well, they're just so different. They figured something out. They're special. And I'm like, no, like I sit here and in this conversation, I'm like, yeah, no, that makes sense. I had that experience. I remember this moment. I remember that thing that happened that kind of led me down this path. And and there's so much to it where you're just in my experience, I'm looking at life through this scope of someone who is healing, obviously, and I've said this before, I don't think you're ever like healed, like this is a fucking lifetime journey. But in this journey, you you learn and you understand and you you get so much clarity about who you are. But I think it takes all of those little sequences, all of those experiences. And unfortunately, I think life is obviously linear. Healing is not. So it's like you have this straight line and then you have these ups and downs like are incongruence with each other. And you just learn because like I have this question that I want to go. I want to go back to something that you said because and we'll get into art therapy, I promise. But I, I think that this is really important and probably the catalyst into this question. You, know, you mentioned being in your early 20s and working with those little boys. I remember distinctly in my own journey being young and art being kind of this thing that I explored, um, but there wasn't a lot of safety around it. And I think a lot of kids are are really scared to express themselves, especially in environments like that. And so I'm wondering twofold. One, what was it that you learned from those children in that environment and what did they learn from you? Yeah. Um, I think, I think what I learned was that they, they needed an outlet. They were looking for a creative outlet and, and that wasn't offered to them, especially, I mean, I don't know exactly what their environments were like in their foster homes or their homes with their biological families, but in that environment, there, there was not a lot of expression. They were living in a facility, right? And so um, yes, they were going to therapy, but it, as you said, it wasn't necessarily safe for them to express themselves with their peers. So the art making process really um, provides this safe container 
when done in the safety of a relationship, you know, and that's really the definition of therapy that takes place within that therapeutic relationship. And even though I was not a therapist in that particular role, I was that that safe relationship for them to to create that art in. So in a way, I created that sort of safe container within the art making process. And I um, so so I, I think maybe that's what they they learned from me. I don't know, but um, what I learned from them was, um, I don't know, that's a good question. I, I learned through those experiences that, um, well, like I said, that they, that they really needed that outlet, that it could be very helpful for them. And, and I think they learned um, what safety could look like within that relationship and learned to trust through those, through those projects. You know, and again, even though I wasn't an art therapist yet, um, a really key component of art therapy is that it's about the process and not so much about the product. And so in art classes, we're really taught that it's about the product. It's about your technical skills, it's about learning to make a vase of flowers look like a vase of flowers. But in art therapy, it is about, it is about that process. And then we certainly look at the end result, but it is not um, primarily about that and making something look a certain way. So if we can sort of... Um, sort of kind of take the expectations down a notch and say, we're just here to play and create something, then I think um, that that's so helpful. And I think that's something that I provided to them. Speaking of process, right. And that obviously being the, the, the crux of this whole thing, when it comes to art therapy, I would love if you would just kind of define what art therapy is and how that differs from other forms of therapy and kind of integrated within that? Like, what is the process? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so art therapy is a master's level mental health profession. So the same as a licensed professional counselor, a social worker, a marriage and family therapist. And a lot of people don't know that, that it is a licensed profession that requires that you attend an accredited a master's level art therapy program. And as I shared before, you have to have a background in psychology and, and visual arts in order um, to even enter that program. And in a practical sense, what it is like within um, an art therapy session is that your therapist is, is engaging you in the active process of, of art making, so a visual art. And then there's also some verbal processing. So it's not entirely you just go make art and the therapist stares at you, but it's also not entirely talking like like regular talk therapy. You're doing both. And it can look different depending on the art therapist, depending on their approach. Um, but but it definitely takes place within that psychotherapeutic relationship. Um, many people will say just that their hobby of doing art that is therapeutic is art therapy. Or certainly I've seen adult coloring books that actually say art therapy on the cover. And there are art therapists all over the globe. They get up in arms about that because that is not art therapy. When those first got popular, every art therapist in the world was so angry because it is therapy and drawing, coloring in a coloring book is a therapeutic art activity. It's actually what we would call art as therapy. So your weekend hobby is painting landscapes is art as therapy, but art therapy um, takes place within an art therapy session with a trained and licensed art therapist. So as someone, uh, so this is, you know, it's really interesting to me. I was thinking the other day, I have done every modality of healing that you can imagine, except art therapy. Like this, as we were preparing for this show, I was thinking to myself like, damn, I've done everything. Reiki, Gestalt, NLP, CBT, EMDR, like you name it, like all of the things. And I was like, I've never done art therapy before. But as a kid, I distinctly remembered like, I love to draw. 
Like I would always be drawing in school or reading a book because I didn't give a shit about school. So I would just sit there and like draw and create. And I remember it being this beautiful process, except I kept getting in trouble. And now in real time, I'm like, hmm, I wonder if that's a boundary and a limiting belief that I have to work through to step into art. And but I also think like maybe my art is this, you know what I mean? So for someone who is kind of like sitting in there, like in there with you, they're processing art as therapy, they're going through this. What is what's transpiring? Like, how can art therapy be used in actually healing trauma? Like where to like, where's the connection happen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'm actually going to go a little more in depth in this with you um, on this podcast, because I think this is the place to do it um, to, to really get into what's happening in the brain. Um, art therapy really activates the right and left sides of our brain. And art therapists really use this strategically. And it involves how we um kind of what directives we give. Sometimes it's super open-ended and sometimes we give a specific directive to the client and um, also involves what type of art media we choose. So I'm going to get into the art media in just a minute um, because I think that's the more um, sort of practical piece of this that listeners can actually apply to their own art making at home, even if it's not quote-unquote art therapy. Um, that's something I love sharing about how we interact with the media and how that affects our brains. But, but first, I'm going to share kind of a more in-depth foundation of that. And so there's this concept in art therapy called the expressive therapies continuum. And um, you can picture that as sort of a diagram of, of three, three lines, um, three, three horizontal lines, and then there's one vertical line down the middle. And so um, I guess first I'll explain that in trauma treatment, we approach it either from a bottom-up approach or a top-down approach. And bottom up means we're kind of starting um, kind of in our body, in our senses and the sensory and kinesthetic components um, of our, our physical experience and our emotions, and then kind of moving up to the cognitive and kind of making more sense of it in what I call our thinking brain. So kind of we start in our feeling brain, feeling brain, and, and move into our thinking brain to make more cognitive sense of things. And from the top down approach, we might start in, in our thinking brain and move to our feeling brain. And so an art therapist is going to really gauge um, where a client is, if they're really in their emotion and need to start expressing that, or if they really cannot access their emotions and they're stuck in the cognitive, then we start there. You know, you meet the client where they are. And both are important, though, for healing. So you want to integrate the cognitive and the more effective, the, the, the bodily sensations. And so with that expressive therapies continuum that I explained, so, so the bottom level of this involved the sensory components. So, so basically the expressive therapies continuum, it, it describes the way we interact with, with the art making process. And again, I'll get into more of the art media as a second component of this. So, so the first level of how we interact is sensory and kinesthetic. Um, sensory would be if you imagine like you're, you're using a piece of Play-Doh or modeling clay, and you're really concerned with um, with engaging your senses. So you're feeling what it feels like, the texture, maybe gently pressing your fingertips into it, seeing what that feels like, you know, maybe the smell of the clay. And then the kinesthetic component is this, this polarity, sort of the opposite of that, where you're more focused on the movement. So this would look like maybe pounding the clay or more aggressively kneading the clay, really engaging your muscles in that movement. And as you shift from one to the other, you're less focused on the opposite end. Again, these are polarities. So if I'm more focused on the pounding of the clay and that kinesthetic movement, let's say I've got a lot of anger. I've definitely worked with a lot of kids in the past who, who had that anger just deeply in their bodies. 
And so, so they're concerned with the kinesthetic quality and nothing else. Um, if you, if you transition more into the sensory component, focusing on the texture, the smell, then you're not as focused on the kinesthetic. Um, if we move up to the next level of the three levels and the expressive therapies continuum, it is perceptual affective. So we, we engage with the art making process from a perceptual perspective by focusing on using line and value to create form. So you're, you're creating, um, like the definition of different figures and shapes, the difference between a foreground and a background, that kind of thing. And I guess I should say, so this sensory component and the perceptual are very much more left-brained activities. When we think about left brain versus right brain, where the kinesthetic and the affective are right brain. And so on the other end of the spectrum, what it looks like to engage on an affective level in the art is you're using more color, you're expressing your emotions, and you're not so concerned with the form and, and making like recognizable shapes. You're just focused on, on the colors and the emotions. And then the third level yeah. is cognitive symbolic, with cognitive being engaging more of the left brain and symbolic being engaging more of the right brain. So, so cognitively, that deals with our... Um, you know, our recent memories, just our, like I said, our thinking brain, kind of the things we're aware of and symbolic is coming up with symbolic representations of things we've been through. And so if someone comes into therapy with past trauma and they, they're not really connected to their body and their feelings, we might start at that cognitive level where, um, where they're telling the story of their trauma. They're drawing a picture of an event. Whereas if they come in and can, are not able to verbalize what happened to them, we just start with that, those sensory kinesthetic components. We just start um, with kind of playing with the art media and get into um, connecting to, to our emotions. It's in that more affective state um, in playing with the materials, like for example, finger painting, that you're gonna be able to access um, sort of the, the subconscious emotions, kind of those things we shove down, the, the memories of the trauma, you're gonna be able to access them in that state. I'm um, curious. I in this because the thing that comes to mind for me and i'm sure a lot of people may be having the same thought is a it, it sounds i think it sounds complicated in the moment obviously like while you're in it it's a very different experience but how do you my thought is and this may just be a me thing and that's why i'm asking the question obviously is there a space where you find that people have to let their guard down to step into this medium because like in my head, cognitively, I'm like, oh yeah, talk therapy makes sense. Group therapy makes sense. Punching something makes sense to me, right? All those different aspects of like that. And in this, I'm thinking to myself like, oh, that's probably this place that is incredibly vulnerable, or maybe that's just my interpretation of it. So do you find that there is this area where people really need to let their guard down for this to have efficacy? Yeah, I, th I mean, it, it depends on on the client for sure. I mean, most often those who come to me seeking out art therapy are comfortable with the idea of art making on some level. Um, but I remember in graduate school, one day we had um, some music therapy students come into our class and teach us an activity of like making drums out of Tupperware containers. And we did a drum circle and I was so uncomfortable with that. And like no one else in the class understood why I was so uncomfortable so music therapy is not something that I would seek out because that would be too, too much for me. That would be too overwhelming. Um, and so that for the first time gave me a glimpse into, oh, people who are not comfortable with art because I'd grown up with art. It was always a comfort zone for me. And so 
So I think those who, who have that much of a reaction against it, the way I couldn't imagine doing music therapy, um, probably would not seek that out as a first mode of treatment. But that said, I do certainly have clients that they're a little more apprehensive. And so, as I said earlier, we, we start with where the client is. So um, I worked with kids for many years and, you know, I would often have little boys in particular that just loved drawing with pencils, with graphite pencils, black and white, no color. They could control it, which um, I can get more into talking about the art media, which is which is my favorite thing to talk about and how that comes into play here. But, but if I, I knew I knew kind of the psychological reasons why they needed that media and they were also expressing that's what they liked to use. So I start out by asking, like, do you like art? Do you like to draw? Have you drawn before? What have you used? What do you like to use? And we start there. And that gives me information about where they are. So I know where to start again with that top down or bottom up approach. I know if, if they I mean, sometimes people will be like, I really need something expressive. Give me a way to express myself then we'll get out the paints and the oil pastels and the chalks. Um, but if they're more apprehensive, they're probably going to go towards that art media that's easy to control, like a pencil. And I'm going to allow them to do that. And we'll kind of inch our way into the, the, the activities that are going to um, bring out their emotions more and get them more in their bodies. What is it that, like, if you were to summarize it in a simplified way, what is it that you would say that is kind of the framework or the baseline that allows this modality to really be effective for, let's call it a specific group of people, as opposed to the broad general audience of folks listening. What is it that you would like drill down into? Like, this is the reason why I think it's efficable. Hey, Unbroken Nation, we'll be right back to the show, but I wanted to let you know that you can grab a copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, for free. If you go to book.thinkunbroken.com, you can download the PDF ebook version of the book and get everything that I know about the baseline of healing trauma for free downloaded to your email right now. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to download your copy of Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for a PDF for your phone. Again, that is book.thinkunbroken.com. I think because, um, so, so I work now primarily with women who are survivors of narcissistic abuse um, and using my own experience to, to help them. Um, if you don't mind, let me explain more about my, my experience and what led me to the work I'm doing today. And that's gonna, that's gonna explain a lot. So, so when I found myself in therapy after experiencing this abusive relationship and after I, I had had so many just um, experiences in life that had rocked my sense of self, I, my therapist one day challenged me to make some steps towards creating art again, because I hadn't been making much art on my own outside of just the work I would do with my, with my therapy clients. And, and so I, it was so interesting how, you know, we often just need someone to give us permission to do something for ourselves. And so I actually had in mind for a long time that I wanted to rent an art studio at a local art center. I knew they had small studios that could be affordable. And I had looked into it. I looked on the website frequently to check the availability, but I had never taken that step. And so when my therapist said, how about between this week and our appointment next week, you just make some step towards making art. And I think she thought I was going to clear away like the corner of the kitchen table or something, um, make a little space at home um, to, to make art. Um, I actually had this idea to rent a studio. So I went out literally an hour before my next therapy session. I rented I reviewed the available spaces, made a choice, chose one, signed a lease, went to, went to my, my therapy appointment right after that and proudly proclaimed that I had, 
I had signed a lease on a studio space and she was so surprised. Um, then that space became a place where I could go just freely express myself, um, informed by my knowledge and training in art therapy, but also just Jennifer as Jennifer, everything else stripped away, just trying to to get all of these emotions out of my body. You know, anyone who's experienced um, any kind of domestic violence, um, coercive control, gaslighting, you know, you, you don't know, um, you don't know how to make sense of what you went through. And um, often you're just anxious. There's so many feelings right on the surface. And so I had so much bubbling up and I just, um, I finger painted, I put like a big piece of paper on the wall with my first drawing with chalk. And I would literally just like walk along the wall and draw. And I did whatever felt good with, with the thought that nobody else ever has to see this. Like, this is not something I'm going to show to anybody. This is just for me. And it is a way for me to express my emotions. As a part of that, I remembered a particular um, technique that I learned in art therapy school um, by an art therapist and author named Pat Allen. She wrote a book called Art as a Way of Knowing. And she developed this process of spontaneous art making and then what she referred to as witness writing. And so what this is, is literally you're dialoguing with your artwork, which in essence is you're dialoguing with different parts of your brain. So in trauma work, we know we have these different parts of ourselves, these different parts of our brain. And so in that um, art making and then writing in response to it, but literally like asking the drawing questions. Like if you could talk, what would you say? What do you need? Really, I'm asking myself what I need, but that was too hard for me to ask myself when I was in that cognitive state of just overthinking things. I had to use the art materials to get in my body, in my senses. And then once that sort of opened up and I've accessed my right brain, that my thinking brain is I like this, or my left brain, no, sorry, my right brain, my feeling brain, then I can sort of pull it back into my thinking brain and make more sense of it. And so um, this is where we're pulling from that sort of cognitive level down into the effective work, or no, the opposite, from that effective level up into to the cognitive. And so, um, so I began that process and I kept doing it and kept doing it. And, um, and there was a real kind of integration of these different parts of myself that, that, um, that occurred in that process. And part of this is the use of the art media. So, so more, so another kind of spectrum to talk about is that we can categorize all art media on the spectrum from fluid to resistive. And so fluid media, of course, is, is paint, but even within paint, watercolor paint or a watered down, like thinned out acrylic or oil paint, it's gonna be more fluid than thick paint right out of a tube. And then kind of um, moving down the spectrum, you have um, soft chalk pastels that, that feel, you know, you can sort of glide them across the page. It creates a lot of chalk dust that you can smear around in a real, real fluid fashion. And then keep going down the spectrum to the more resistive, like I mentioned, little boys that, that really feel the need to draw with a graphite pencil for a sense of control. So the reason why this is important is precisely because the resistive media, which um, requires more control and gives you a sense of control um, that can alleviate anxiety. It helps you feel in control of your emotions and in control of your body. Whereas the more fluid media, it, 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 it gets in kind of at that effective level where you're accessing your emotions, you're more in your body. And so, mm. so I knew this as I was approaching the art myself. So I would assess, how am I feeling? What do I need in this moment? So do I need to draw with pencils a really tight mandala design because that feels good and calming and like I can control it? The same reason people love the, the um, adult coloring books. 
it can give them a sense of control. But some days, those adult coloring books are, are drawing a really tight pencil design would make me feel anxious. And I would need to be more expressive and use the paint. Um, you know, and it was so interesting when I learned this concept in graduate school, I had it immediately made sense to me intuitively as an artist, because I remembered back in my undergraduate experience, I would often get really kind of lost in the paints and I didn't know why. I would just stand like for hours in my painting studio and just go over and over the same thing. And I was notorious for never finishing a painting. And, and even in my, my senior art show, I ended up with a very small amount of works that didn't even need to be narrowed down. I had just enough to fill my part of the gallery, you know, because I just kept going over and over and over again on these um, canvases or a piece of wood. This, this painting actually behind me is one of those that I did in college. And I would, um, I would get lost in it and I'd feel anxious. And then what I would do eventually was I would take the back end of my paintbrush, the handle, and make a line to delineate a form. So like I was explaining earlier, that, um, that kind of left-brained activity of the, the perceptual engagement where we need to create a form, it's like we need to contain it. Whereas when we're moving more into the feelings with the paint, things are less contained. It's, it's more about our emotions. And so I was feeling the need to go from that polarity of the feelings, oh my gosh, I'm lost in the feelings and the fluid media and the paint, over to I needed to like rein it in by, by making lines and making more solid forms and shapes. And so when I learned about the fluid versus resistive media in graduate school, it made so much sense, sense to me based on how I naturally engage with art media because I tend to be anxious and I love painting, but that can feel overwhelming. And so I need, I need to sort of rein it in. And so these are all concepts that I apply with, with clients. You know, I have specific directives where, you know, you make a mess and then clean it up. You create a painting and then you, you rein it in somehow by, by going back and adding lines to contain it. And vice versa, those who feel a high need for control and just need that resistive media, they need to just make a cut a perfectly, you know, perfectly cut out magazine pictures to make a collage or just drawing with with black and white with pencils. Um, you know, I, I will gradually kind of ease them into well, what would it look like just to use liquid glue instead of a glue stick? Because that's more fluid, right? It, it might induce a little bit of anxiety. It's not exactly like exposure therapy, but in a way, if you want to think of it that way, you know, we're kind of inching them forward this experience of um, what would it feel like to feel a little uneasy and a little bit out of control within this space mm -hmm. of the art making session, right? Within yeah. the whole container of your piece of paper within that safe psychotherapeutic relationship. Um, yeah. That makes a, a ton of sense to me because I'm thinking to myself, there's been these times in my journey where if I'm doing something, I'm like intentionally somehow because of understanding my need for control, I'm like, oh, you know, be really interesting. Just let go of this and see what happens. And to, I'm like in visualizing, like going through this process of creating this art and then like making it messy to see what that feels like. So that makes so much sense to me. I mean, it, it feels like CBT to some aspect, right? Um, I'm really curious for, for people who maybe they're at home and they're listening and this is a new idea for them. They've never even heard this concept before. And they're like, oh, this is curious. And I want to at least tap into this a bit, how could they do this at home with themselves in a way that could, I don't know, necessarily be therapeutic, but at least it would be something that would start planting a seed about this being a modality for them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think first I would encourage um, anyone who's interested in this to, to explore different types of painting and drawing media. So like I said, I know 
I can, I've, I've learned to, to notice in my body what days I need to use more resistive media like a pencil and what days I just need to paint and express myself. So I would, I would encourage listeners to, to go get a Crayola watercolor tray that you can find in the school supply aisle of your grocery store. It's easy to obtain. Get some crayons, some markers, some colored pencils. I also really love oil pastel, which I often call like an oily crayon. It's a little more fluid. It glides on the paper and you can blend it more so than a regular crayon. So, so get a variety of, of those art materials that can be just the Crayola, you know, student grade. It doesn't have to be fancy and just play, just experiment with it. You know, that's another really important part of art therapy that I hear from clients that they, they love the expressive quality of it and that they can just play because as trauma survivors, we've not always been allowed to play and to be free in that sense. And so again, it's that safe container of the art making process where we can play. Um, also, I often say that, that within um, the creative process, there's no impulse control required. So as long as you're not harming yourself or others, you know, you're not sniffing toxic chemicals, then, then there's really no impulse control required. You can do what you want. So I would encourage anyone who's interested in this to just play with different kinds of art media and notice how your body responds. Notice how your body responds on different days. Notice what you're feeling. Do some journaling, some writing about that. And then second, um, kind of a foundational art therapy intervention that I use um, with my art therapy clients, also with, with my coaching clients. This is something I teach that definitely can be done um, easily at home without an art therapist, is essentially a scribble drawing. And this is something that all art therapists um, use, and it sounds silly, but it is really fascinating and really impactful. So literally, you know, I always encourage clients to imagine if that emotion was, was coming from your head, because we often think our emotions in our mind, right? They're in our head, they're not in our body. So imagine if that was coming down from, from your mind, from your brain, through your arm, out through that, that color pencil, that marker, that crayon onto the paper. What, what kind of line would that make? How would that move across the page? And so obviously, you know, something like anger for most people that has a lot of energy to it, right? So that's going to be like a fast zigzaggy scribble line for most people and choose a color that goes with that feeling for you. Then maybe, you know, calm, sad, um, relaxed, excited, joyful, like whatever, whatever feeling you're having or just whatever feeling you kind of feel on a regular basis. Um, practice how you would express that literally just through a scribble using line, shape, and color, not trying to make it look like a happy face or a sad face. Just how would that, would that emotion move out of your body if it was a line on the page? And then I encourage um, that process that I explained that I do and that I teach to my clients of the, the responsive writing or what Pat Allen referred to as the witness writing. So you're, you're witnessing your art. You're kind of, um, you know, oftentimes in art therapy, we, we think about the piece of art as kind of the third person in the therapy session. So it's like there's mm. the client, there's the therapist, and then there's the art over there. And when we take it physically outside of ourselves and we have this visual representation of it there on the paper, in the sculpture, on the canvas, then it makes it, it, makes it feel safer to talk about. And there's some sort of what I call reflective distance there. So, so we've distanced ourselves from it a little bit emotionally by taking it out of our body, out of our brain and putting it on the paper. And then, and then that writing process creates even more of that distance. And like I said, taking things kind of from our feeling brain to our thinking brain. So, so ask a question. Um, I like to start out though, by it can, it can be, it can be hard to sort of get into the question asking if you're not used to it. So I encourage you just to start out by kind of writing your observations about your feeling scribble drawing. So write, you know, there's a yellow blob in the corner. There's some black lines here, you know, just describe what you see. 
And then maybe ask yourself a question. Is there anything that surprised you? Like, what do you see here? And then start asking your artwork questions. Like, what do you need? What is this? What is this black squiggle line? You know, what does that mean? What are you trying to tell me? How do you feel? Again, what do you need is a really powerful one for most of my clients. Um, and just write down, this is very much a free association form of writing. So you're writing whatever comes to your mind um, without judgment, without editing. And then later, um, I think you'll find as you read back over it, there, there's a lot of insight to be gained in that. And um, I often practice this as, as sort of a journaling technique, just in my sketchbook or journal, I'll do a quick scribble and then do that, that writing in response. And again, many of my clients find that really helpful as well. Yeah, that sounds, and it sounds attainable too. I mean, you have a piece of paper and a pencil at your house, like no excuses, right? And at least it'll give you an idea and you can step in and it might be for you, it may not. Even now I'm like, yo, right after this, I'm going to go do it just to see what happens. Jennifer, my friend, this has been an amazing conversation. Can you tell everyone where they can find you? Yeah, so um, I'm on Instagram at Jennifer Ann Kramer and with an E, Kramer with a K um, on Facebook as Jennifer Kramer Art Therapy. I have a free Facebook group called Women Overcoming Narcissistic Abuse. You can find that on a link to that on my Facebook page. Um, also a good website that has, that has all the links to everything is my link tree. It's, it's at, it's link tree, Jennifer A. Kramer. That's also the link in bio, um, all in my Instagram. Brilliant. And of course, we'll put the links in the show notes for the audience. My last question for you, my friend, what does it mean to you to be unbroken? So I'm an avid listener of the podcast and I've thought about this question a lot, you know, and I, I think that, that we all are broken. I think that that is what it means to be human, that we're broken. But the thing is, we often think of being broken as I am the only one. This is horrible. Like, I will never find a way out of this. Um, we can get lost in that. But I think if we recognize that it's part of the human condition to be broken down by life and trauma, by all these life experiences, then in a sense, um, it loses its meaning, if that makes sense. You know, if everybody is broken, then no one is broken in the way that we tend to think about it. And so I think when we can recognize that we're all in the state of brokenness, we're all trudging through this thing called life, um, then, then that's where we can experience this feeling of, of, of unbrokenness. Truth. I love that. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. Unbroken Nation, thank you so much for listening. Please like, subscribe, comment, share, tell a friend. And until next time, be unbroken. I'll see ya. We'll be right back to the show, my friend, but I wanted to let you know about our brand new podcast community for Think Unbroken Podcast. I know that for so many trauma survivors like myself, for the longest time, I felt alone, like nobody got it, nobody understood, and that I was just going to have to figure this out on my own. But that's not true. And the reason why we created our brand new Think Unbroken Academy podcast community is so that we can bring all the members of the Unbroken Nation together in a place where we can learn, grow, heal, change, and transform our trauma into triumph. I would love to have you come and be a part of the brand new community. Just check out thinkunbrokenacademy.com or click the link in the podcast description. And I cannot wait to see you there, my friend. Again, just head over to thinkunbrokenacademy.com. And until then, be unbroken. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken. Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. 
And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five star, leave a review. And you can also reach out to us on social at Michael Unbroken or at Think Unbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at Think Unbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends. And until next time, be unbroken. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show. But I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.